Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, The Book of Mormon on Trial. But before we get to tonight's podcast, we have some late-breaking news rolling in. It appears that, yes, the LDS Church has done it again. The Worldwide Day of Fasting held by the LDS Church on Friday, April 10th, Good Friday of 2020, has turned back, repeat, has turned back the coronavirus. I am beginning to see reports of this flooding the pages of Facebook. Here is one example. This in from Grace McLean regarding the worldwide fast April 10th. I've been tracking how many deaths per day that have occurred. I wanted to share what the numbers did after our fast on Friday. They were the highest they've ever been the Friday we fasted. But every day since then, the death toll has decreased. I'm hoping the trend continues. Accompanying this Facebook post is a chart containing the statistics of COVID-19 deaths in the United States, which of course were increasing dramatically through the month of March and into the month of April. April 7th, there were 1,973 deaths. April 8th, 1,943 deaths. On April 9th, there were 1,901 deaths. Wait a second, this appears to be going down prior to the fast. They are. April 7th, 1,973 deaths. That's a high point. But then it begins going down on April 8th to 1,943 deaths. That's 30 deaths less. And then on April 9th, it decreases again to 1,901 deaths. So apparently it is going down prior to the Worldwide Day of Fasting on April 10th. This is a bit confusing for me. But on Friday, April 10th, the day of Worldwide Fasting, the number of deaths in the United States related to COVID-19 inexplicably shot up from 1,901 deaths the day before to 2,035 deaths. This was the highest number of reported deaths in one day. So once again, it appears that the number of deaths have been decreasing prior to the day of fasting, but on the day of fasting itself, it shot up once again to hit the high watermark of deaths in the United States for a single day. After that, however, after the day of fasting and prayer, which may or may not have caused the deaths to shoot up to their high watermark, after that day of fasting and prayer, they began going down again. April 11th, 1830 deaths. Well, that's significant because that's the same year that the church was organized, 1830. April 12th, the day after, 1528 deaths. That's a dramatic decrease. April 13th, 1487 deaths. And those are the statistics as of yesterday because today's date is April 14th, 2020. So yes, it does look like the day of fasting and prayer held by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has done the trick. The COVID-19 virus has been stopped dead in its tracks. Well, if not stopped dead in its tracks, at least it's decreasing now. As we know, however, this was not the first worldwide fast that the LDS Church had called in order to stem the tide of the coronavirus. The first fast was held 12 days prior to that on Sunday, March 29, 2020. That was the first fast that was called for by President Russell M. Nelson. So it appears that the first fast did not do the trick. It was not sufficient to get God's attention. Rumor has it that there was a teenager somewhere in American Fork, Utah, who was nibbling on cookies in his bedroom at the time he was supposed to be fasting on March 29, 2020. And that is why This fast was not acceptable to the Lord. That is why the Lord did not turn back the coronavirus after the first fast, and it required President Nelson to take the extra step, to go the extra mile and call a second fast on Good Friday, April 10th, 2020. And it is that second fast that did the trick. So I expect the number of deaths will continue to decrease due to the second fast. If they should shoot up again like they did right before the second fast, we may need to have the unprecedented step of a third day of fasting and prayer in order to turn back this virus. And now for tonight's podcast titled, The Book of Mormon on Trial. Shortly after I joined the church in June of 1978, I began immersing myself in LDS literature. I did not have any books on the subject myself for some time, and so I had to borrow books from other people, from other friends that I knew in the church. One of those books was called, The Book of Mormon on Trial. Its author is Jack West, And what it is, is a recreation in cartoon form of a trial that Jack West claimed to have back in 1941 when he was at law school at Stanford University. According to Jack West, the professor, who goes unnamed in his account, unfortunately, decided to have an unusual final exam for his students. At the end of the semester, every student would be asked to pick a subject and to decide whether they were going to prosecute that subject or defend that subject. 
and then whichever side they picked, the rest of the class would be on the other side of the equation. What Jack West, a devout Mormon, did was he decided to defend the truth claims of the Book of Mormon. So here is Jack West defending the Book of Mormon against his entire class, some of the sharpest young minds in the country at law school at Stanford University. Well, spoiler alert, Jack West wins the day. He successfully defends the Book of Mormon. In fact, he triumphs over the rest of his class in defending the Book of Mormon. According to his report, the case lasted for almost three weeks. And after the judge, who was his professor, rendered his decision in favor of the defense, the professor said, quote, you have not even established a toehold. This is the professor addressing the rest of the class. You have not even established a toehold, much less a foothold in breaking down the marvelous evidence for the authenticity of the stick of Joseph or the Book of Mormon, much less given any evidence that would show it to be a fraudulent work, exclamation point. So obviously his professor, who once again, unfortunately is not named by Jack West, was overwhelmed by the case for the Book of Mormon. Then Jack West goes on, then the judge called me into his office and said, so this is a private conversation. Jack, where in the world did you get the evidence you presented in this mock trial? I grinned at him and said, you remember at the onset of the trial, I told all of you that I did not take credit for one particle of this evidence. Most of it has been available to the world for over a hundred years. It just needed to be uncovered and organized. And I told you then, as I tell you now, that I believe with all of my heart that God himself prepared that evidence and the witnesses. That witnesses has a capital W. He's referring to the witnesses to the Book of Mormon. The judge responded saying, and this is the point at which I'm pretty sure that this story crosses over into the apocryphal, if indeed that point hasn't been reached previously in the telling of this story. The judge responded saying, I want to tell you something. In all my years in law, I don't think I have ever heard a case more nearly perfect than this one. When you started out, I wouldn't have given you a plugged nickel for your chances of proving that book to be true through the absolute legal process in a court of law. Period. End of quote. Once again, it's unfortunate that we do not have the name of this professor who served as the judge at this law school mock trial because it would have been interesting to see how his recollection of the trial and his feelings about the trial and what he said to Jack West after the trial compares with how it is that Jack West is reporting it. Jack West recounts this experience from which I am quoting in the first part of his book, The Book of Mormon on Trial. And once again, that is a book that was rendered in cartoon form where there is not a law school class but a defense team of three highly entertaining drawn attorneys who are mounting the case against the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon, on the other hand, does not have an attorney representing it. The Book of Mormon represents itself in the course of this trial, which reminds me of a certain saying about somebody who represents themselves. And I got this book and I thought it was fascinating. First off, it was very easy to read. The cartoon format appealed to me. And through it, I was exposed for the first time to many of the arguments against the Book of Mormon as well as the defenses to those arguments. It was probably this book as much as any other that got me on the road of Mormon apologetics, a road which I traversed for over a decade after this. And because of my experience in Mormon apologetics, even after I had grown somewhat tired of it, somewhat frustrated with it, somewhat even disillusioned with the entire enterprise, I was asked from time to time to talk on the subject of Book of Mormon evidences. And when I was asked to do so, I was happy to blow the dust off the books and present a case for the Book of Mormon. Some years back, I was asked by John Larson to appear on his podcast, Mormon Expressions to present a case for the Book of Mormon. Now, by this time, I was really not a believer in the historicity and all the truth claims of the Book of Mormon. I still thought it was a special book. I still find there's a great deal of value in the book even today as I'm recording this. But John Larson was not able to get any TBM apologists on his show to stand up against him and defend the Book of Mormon with a person opposite him, i.e. John Larson, who actually knew the arguments, knew the counters to those arguments, and talk about it in an open and frank way. And so, because none of the real apologists would do it, I stepped into the breach. We had a great discussion. We had a wonderful time. John Larson was a complete gentleman, and we did not have any of the customary friction and sparks that can fly between people who are discussing and even arguing about different sides of the religion coin. Well, that podcast made the rounds. It came to the attention of a number of people, and one of those people had their own blog. And that person who heard me defending the Book of Mormon on Mormon Expressions asked if I would write a blog at their blog site, at their webpage, 
along the same lines and present a case for the Book of Mormon. I said I would be happy to, and so I ended up writing a two-part blog on the Book of Mormon for that website. That is the blog I'm going to go to this evening. And I thought when I was writing it, this is the same old material that I've been saying a number of times. This is the same old material that people have been hearing a number of times. What can I do to try and take this old material and try and freshen it up a little bit, to try and make it, at least hopefully, marginally entertaining to be read again? And what I decided to do was I decided to assume the character of somebody who lived in Joseph Smith's neighborhood, somebody who was perhaps a little bit backwoodsy, the way they talk, the way they express themselves, and yet somebody who also was aware of all the Book of Mormon research that has gone on for 200 years since they lived in the neighborhood of Joseph Smith. So I went ahead and I did a two-part blog setting forth the evidences for the Book of Mormon. But after it was over, I was receiving a lot of pushback about not dealing with the counter-arguments for the Book of Mormon. In other words, I was just arguing one side of the case. I was not dealing with the other side of the case. And so, as a third part, as a separate blog, I wrote a blog containing what I considered to be the strongest evidence against the Book of Mormon. And to try and be clear, I'm not trying to argue the Book of Mormon is true or that the Book of Mormon is not true in the subsequent blog. Instead, the focus is a little bit more narrow and hopefully a little bit more objective. Instead of arguing truth or falsity, I am arguing the position that the Book of Mormon is not a product of early 19th century America. That is the first two parts. In the last part, I argue against that proposition, and I argue that the Book of Mormon is, in fact, a product, clearly a product, of the early 19th century. So some of you may really like the first two parts of this podcast because you want to hear me defend the Book of Mormon and argue for the fact that it is an ancient book. Others of you may not like that part so much, but will like the part after it where I argue against it being an ancient book. But what I'm trying to do to the best of my ability is argue both sides of the same proposition and let you, the listener, decide which is the strongest argument. So here is the first part of that two-part blog in favor of the Book of Mormon. It is from August 19, 2013, and it is titled Evidences for the Book of Mormon, Part 1. It goes like this. The year is 1829. The place is upstate New York. Using his trusty magic rock, a 23-year-old farm boy dictates a 600-page book from the bottom of a hat. He says it is a history of some folks who left Jerusalem about 600 B.C. He says it is written in the language of the Egyptians, but with the learning of the Jews. Yes, I actually wrote learning, L-A-R-N-I-N-G, learning of the Jews. That's me trying to be an old, crusty, upstate New Yorker in the early 19th century. The first section now is called Old Names in a New Book. This book contains a lot of people. I'm going to try and do an accent. <laughs> this book contains a lot of people. Farm Boy gives many of them names. A lot of those names can be found in the Bible. Names like Lehi and Laman and Lemuel. A lot of those names can't be found in the Bible. Queer names like Chemish, Hagoth, and Himni. More queer names like Jerem, Josh, and Luram. Still more queer names like Methoni, Methoni-ha, and Mulokai. It's not hard to come up with queer-sounded names. Just string some consonants together, throw in a few vowels, and viola. Queerest of all is that all these queer-sounded names turn out to be actual names from ancient Israel. Turns out those ancient folk used to seal their envelopes with wax before we got civilized and learned to do it with spit. <laughs> That's kind of funny. I'm sorry, I'm just actually reading this cold for the first time in a number of years. Then they'd stick their names in the wax to show who the letter was from. Some of those wax pieces got all petrified and gets discovered long after this book comes off the press. These Jewish names in the book get found on these hard wax pieces. Bully for them, I say. And actually, that's kind of a <laughs> that's kind of an inside joke because the technical name for these petrified pieces of wax are bully or bully. Bully is plural. So I say bully for them, I says. Jershon is mentioned as a land. Now that's in the Book of Mormon, of course. This land was given to a group of people who were thrown out of their homeland. The book says it was given to them as a land of inheritance. Turns out Jershon means Land of inheritance in Hebrew. What are the odds? A really funny name is Alma. Now, that's not so funny if it's a girl being called Alma, but in this book, 
It's a man. And not just one man, but two. A father and his son. I guess the first Alma hated his name so much he decided to saddle his son with it just to get even. (laughs) Yeah, this is pretty good. I'm liking this. Life ain't easy for a boy named Alma. At least it ain't easy until 1968 when an old land deed turns up in Israel showing another guy named Alma lived in Israel a long time ago too. Third time pays for all, I suppose. And that expression, third time pays for all, I just recollected I borrowed from a Stephen King book that I was probably reading at the same time. And I also have to apologize at this point because it was after I wrote this blog in 2013 that I discovered that the Jewish name Alma on the old land deed is not as impressive as it first seemed when you know that other men named Alma lived and died in the very area of New York that Joseph Smith lived. Just trying to clear up the record. Going on. Third time pays for all, I says. This book also contains a bunch of what turn out to be Egyptian names. I guess that makes sense because the book is supposed to be written in some kind of newfangled Egyptian. What don't make sense is that Egyptian wasn't really translatable yet. Ammon was a big name among the ancient Egyptians, probably because Ammon was a god or something. Turns out the name Ammon gets a lot of play in this book too. More people are named Ammon even than Alma. It even gets used in other names, names like Ammon-Aha, Amnihu, and Heel Ammon. Seems like this book can't get enough of the name Ammon, just like the Egyptians couldn't. And there I'm referencing the fact that I understand to be the case that Ammon is the most popular name in Egyptian, or at least was for a certain time period. It also is the most popular name in the Book of Mormon going on. A fellow named Corihor shows up in this book. He is a bad egg. Only later do some eggheads discover that Carihor is an old Egyptian name. A guy named Pehoran has a kid named Payanki. Another egghead named William F. Albright says these are authentic Egyptian names, and he fancied himself some type of expert. He says this in 1966. Albright don't believe this book is true necessarily, but he does say that given the fact the Egyptian had just begun to be deciphered when the book was translated, It is all the more surprising, and here I'm quoting from a famous letter by William F. Albright, indeed one of the most learned men in the field in the world at the time. It is all the more surprising that there are two Egyptian names, Payank and Pehoran, which appear together. Another name in this book is Aha. That's a funny name. Sounds like something I might say when stumbling across the licorice whip I'd given up for lost. This aha isn't an important person in the book. His name just gets mentioned the once. It's come and gone before you knows it. (laughs) I'm starting to sound like Jethro Bodine. But the really funny thing is it turns out to be a real name and an Egyptian name to boot. Guess it means warrior in old Egyptian. They gave this name to their first king. Funny that. This book starts at the same time a guy named Zedekiah is king of Jerusalem. Well, that's not hard. Zedekiah is mentioned in the Bible as the king of Jerusalem. The Bible says that the Babylonians killed all of Zedekiah's sons. The farm boy's book says, that's not right, that one of Zedekiah's sons escaped being killed. Yes, I spell it (laughs) K-I-L-T. I hope my Scottish listeners will forgive me. That one of Zedekiah's sons escaped being killed. That this son's name was Mulek. Now, Mulek is not mentioned in the Bible, at least not so as you can see it right off. What is mentioned in the Bible is a guy named Malchiah, the son of Hamalek. Jeremiah lived at the same time as Zedekiah, but who is this guy, Malchiah? Turns out this isn't translated too well in the King James, that it should be translated Malchiahu, son of the king. Now, the king at the time of Jeremiah might have been Zedekiah, But who was this Malchi Yahoo fellow? It gets stranger because the Yahoo at the end of his name is a shortened form of the name of the Jewish God they called Yahweh. Lots of folks had this at the end of their name. Heck, Jeremiah did too. So did Zedekiah. It was all over the place. Although it wouldn't have occurred to me, the same person's name could be written with or without the Yahoo ending. Jeremiah had a scribe named Baruch, but the long form of his name, Barak Yahu, got found on a seal impression from old-time Israel. 
If Baruch and Barak Yahu are different ways of writing the same name, I reckon Malchai Yahu could also be written as Malchai. But what does Malchai have to do with Mulek? Seems the ancient Hebrews weren't too keen on vowels. They just didn't like them. They didn't use them in the writing. Only the consonants. Sounds confusing to me. But when we write out those old Jewish names today, we put in vowels to make them easier to say. The consonants in Malchai are kind of the same as the consonants in Mulek. No, wait. They are exactly the same. M-L-K. Some smart feller at the Department of Archaeology at Tel Aviv University said that Malchai Yahu is a common name and was even born by a contemporary son of King Zedekiah. That's a quote-unquote from this smart feller at the Department of Archaeology. This smart feller's last name is Ahoroni. He is Jewish. I don't even want to get started with that name and how it kind of sounds like somebody else's name. But it sounds like he is pretty close to agreeing with this farm boy's book as far as this goes. What we end up with is this 1829 book given the name Mulek as a son of King Zedekiah. Zedekiah's name is mentioned in the Bible. Mulek's is not. Or is it? Looks like something very like it is actually encrypted into a bad translation from one verse of Jeremiah in the King James. I'm thinking the guy who dictated Mulek from the bottom of a hat in 1829 didn't know this, though. It's hard enough for me just to get my head around this Malkayahu thing. I can't imagine coming up with it myself, out of whole cloth. According to the story in this book, Mulek is not just the only one of Zedekiah's sons that lives, he also ends up becoming the king of another group that heads out of Jerusalem in the nick of time. Did I mention the word Mulek means king in Hebrew? But now that farm boy is just showing off. The next section is called Gold Bibles. This here farm boy describes the book he says he dictated off of as being writ on gold plates with holes punched on one side and metal loops stuck through to keep the pages from scattering. Now who ever hear to such a thing as that? What an imagination on that boy. So much imagination, in fact, that it took into the next millennium. <laughs> I spell that M-E-E-L-I-N-I-O-O-M. It took into the next millennium for gold books to start turning up. The first one, No to Modern Man, shows up in Bulgaria back in 2003. Folks say it was written in Etruscan or something. Dates clear back to 600 BC, right when the farm boy says his book starts. It weren't but another two years before another gold book gets found. This one in Iran. Eight gold sheets writ in cuneiform. <laughs> yes, and I spell that phonetically as well. Cuneiform. So one gold book found in 2003, another one found in 2005. Both writ on gold plates with holes punched on one side and metal loops stuck through to keep the pages from scattering. Some imagination on that farm boy, I say. The next section is called Hebrews writing in Egyptian. <laughs> yes, and I dropped the E off. I've been using an E in front of Egyptian up to this point, but now I decide I'm going to go whole hog on this backwards country thing, and I dropped the E off. Hebrews writing in Egyptian? This here book says it was written in Hebrew language, but didn't use Hebrew writing. It says Egyptian writing instead. Now, what sense does that make? I never heard of old-time Jews writing in no Egyptian alphabet. Sometime after this book comes out, though, archaeologists... Dunn found a piece of what they call papyrus in an old jar. They called it Papyrus Amherst 63 for some reason. Well, even though they had pretty well figured out the Egyptian language by then, they still had a powerful hard time reading it. It just didn't make no sense. Then, in 1944, some smart feller named Raymond Bowman at the University of Chicago lights on why it's been so hard to read. The writing is Egyptian. But the language is some sort of Hebrew offshoot they call Aramaic. Part of what's writ there is from the 20th Psalm. So what they got there in this Papyrus Amher 63 is a passage from the Bible, writ in the Aramaic language, but writ in Egyptian characters. Now, don't that beat all. And in homage to Joseph Smith, I do spell characters there, C-A-R-A-C-T-O-R-S. There's a lot of Easter eggs in this article, aren't there? <laughs> the next section is called Cement Buildings. You can guess how I'm going to pronounce cement. 
You'd think cramming all those Hebrew and Egyptian names into the book would have plumb wore out this farm boy, but he'd just getting warmed up. There were still lots of engines round in 1829, even in New York. This book says it is the history of those engines and their ancestors long ago. Any fool, even a farm boy, would know that engines didn't live in nothing but teepees and wigwams. But this farm boy plunked smack dab in the middle of his book that at one point way back, these engines made buildings out of cement. I knew you wouldn't believe that whopper. Even the white men weren't making buildings out of cement in 1829 New York. Then, a long time later, what do a bunch of archaeologist fellers find down in the south of Mexico? Buildings made out of cement. I don't know if I have a harder time believing this farm boy put cement buildings in his book or that the archaeologists actually find cement buildings later on. And these cement buildings are around at the same time the book says they are, and in the same place, too. Leastwise, if you think there are two Camorras instead of just the one. Some smart folks are saying the farm boy's book has the wrong reason for the cement buildings being there, and maybe they're right. But it seems to me they just might be talking about fleas on an elephant. <laughs> fleas on an elephant. Where on earth did I come up with that one? Okay, then I end this part one. There's lots more ground to cover, but I expect I better sign off for now. Next time, I'll tell you about things this farm boy knew he shouldn't have known, and things he didn't know that he should have. Okay, so that's part one of my exciting, if not rustic, blog post from 2013 on evidences for the Book of Mormon. I'm sure that's just whetted your appetite for part two. <laughs> Let's go for part two, shall we? Evidences for the Book of Mormon for 200, Alex. Okay, here we go, part two. I don't know if you was around to hear the first part of this tale where I talked about a farm boy said he dictated a book out of a hat and all the outlandish ways that book managed to sneak back and take a peek at history coming up with a parcel of authentic old names, books writ on gold plates, Hebrews writing stuff in Egyptian, and engines building out of cement. Well, that ain't all that book done cribbed. Here's some more. If you can't tell, I'm really warming to this accent. Weird ways of writing. That's the next section called weird ways of writing. Well, it's not just the names and the cement by a long shot. It's the way the whole book is written. Seems that a long time ago, the Jews used to write in a funny way. And I'm not just talking about them using no vowels, neither. When they had something important to say, they would straight up and say it the same as you and me. But then, they would turn around and unsay it the same way they said it the first time. Sort of like, old King Cole was a merry old soul, and a merry old soul was he. Now, I ain't no ancient Israelite, but I can say that much. Though come to think of it, I probably wouldn't say it in normal conversation. Or even if I was dictating a book, out of a hat. But the Jews liked it so much, they said it a lot more complicated-like and stuck lots of it in the Old Testament. I'd never seen it before it was pointed out to me, but it's there just the same. I also never seen it in this farm boy's book till it was pointed out to me, but it's there just the same too. A smart Mormon missionary first saw it there in the 1960s. Imagine, it's sitting there all the while and nobody noticing it till then and all over, just like in the Old Testament, and lots more complicated and fancified than old King Cole. In fact, there's this long chapter in this book, named after that boy Alma, that's nothing but one big long example of this kind of old world writing. It beats anything you can find in the Old Testament too, though it might not be considered polite to say so in mixed company. And here's this farm boy just dictating out of a hat all the live long day, easy as you please, and he comes up with this stuff. I guess he just read the Bible a lot and absorbed it by Ozymosis or something. <laughs> Ozymosis, yeah, that's like Ozzy Osbourne is how I spell that, Ozymosis. Okay, next section, Jesus ain't born in no Jerusalem. That's the name of the section, Jesus ain't born in no Jerusalem. Even though this farm boy looks like an absolute pip on everything in the Bible, he makes at least one boneheaded mistake in that Alma book of his. He says, Jesus was born in Jerusalem. Now, you don't have to be much of a Bible expert to know that just ain't so. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem. Every kid knows that. Farm boy had a lot of chances to fix that too. He corrected lots of things in his book when he went to printing new editions and all, but never saw fit to change the birthplace of Jesus from Jerusalem 
to Bethlehem. I guess it plumb slipped his mind. At least a hundred years later, though, college-educated Bible experts figured out that there did used to be a land of Jerusalem and that Bethlehem was right there in it. If the book had said Jesus was born in the city of Jerusalem, that might be a problem. But no, it's right there that Jesus was born in Jerusalem, the land of our fathers. Ain't no place in the Bible that the land of Jerusalem is mentioned, just the city. I reckon that's another mistake that just happened to turn out right. Lucky farm boy. Next section is called Walking the Walk. But this farm boy ain't done pulling rabbits out of his hat. In fact, the biggest, hairiest rabbit of all was hiding in plain sight in the first 50 pages or so of his book. It has to do with geography. The first part of the book talks about this family leaving Jerusalem and how they left on account of they weren't well cottoned to by their neighbors and how they went south down by the Red Sea where they found a river of water. River of water. What was that farm boy thinking writing river of water? What else does he think a river is going to be made out of? Chocolate? They got any kind of rivers in New York other than water? Even in 1829? I do very much doubt that. And what is he doing putting the river of water in Saudi Arabia anyway? Any darn fool knows there ain't no rivers of water or anything else over there in Saudi Arabia. That there's nothing but desert. It's like the dark side of the moon. Only not so dark. But that's what he says in his book anyways. Funny thing is, some exploring Mormon boys went out into Saudi Arabia over a hundred years later. And guess what they found? A river of water. And it flows into the Red Sea, just like the book says it would. And it flows year-round too, just like the book said it would. And even though nobody thought there was a river of water anywhere in Arabia, turns out there is one, right about where the book says it is too. Not only that, the book says the river runs through a big old valley. Then Mormon boys brought back pictures with them. Sure looks like a big old valley to me that this river runs through. And there I post a picture of what is proposed to be the river of Laman running through the valley of Lemuel, which I imagine most of my listeners are familiar with. I don't go into a lot of detail in recounting this because sometimes the story gets bogged down with the details and the citations and the references and the scholarly stuff as if it's some backwoods guy who would not be familiar with these methods of scholarship in the first place like the footnotes and the references. So what it lacks in citations, I hope it makes up for in flow. It goes on. Then these Jewish folk head along the shore of the Red Sea going deeper and deeper south into Araby. Now Araby is a pretty big place, but they sticks right along the shoreline there. I don't know what this farm boy knew it, but that's the only way to go when you're traveling through Araby. In fact, it used to be called the Frankie Sense Trail. Anybody who went anywhere else was a dang fool because they couldn't last more than a day inland. No water. Miserably hot. The Frankie Sense Trail had some wells along it that folks could at least wet their whistle at. This book makes sure the folks hew right along this trail though. Then these folks get to a place where one of them dies. Guess maybe he wasn't getting enough water after all. They named the place after the guy who croaks. Nahum. I know this is getting to sound like I'm just repeating myself, but dern, if there isn't an actual place down there along the trail right about where they would have stopped called NHM. Did I mention those near eastern folk didn't like vowels? Some German archaeologists found a couple of altars there with the place name on it, plain as day. It said NHM. They didn't find the altars till more than 150 years after the book was writ, though. And at least one of those altars dated back to right when the book says these folks was passing through. You put some vowels in there, and you sure enough can come up with Nahum pretty easy-like. I took myself to some figuring last night, and if you take the vowels out of the alphabet, you got about 20 letters left. To come up with one right letter would be 1 in 20 odds. To come up with two right letters would be one in 400 odds. But to come up with three right letters like this book done would be one in 8,000 odds. Those are tough odds to beat. Maybe this farm boy should have been racehorse betting instead of facing a hat dictating. Looks like he done bet on a nag named Nahum to win. But there's more. This book says from Nahum, 
The folks changed course and started heading just about due east. They went through a lot of desert and had lots of trials and tribulations. Finally, they reached the coast. And what do you think this book says they find? A beautiful, lush area just teeming with shrubbery and greens. They are so happy to see this place, they call it Bountiful. If I was writing a book, I wouldn't put in some place like Bountiful in Saudi Arabia. That's just crazy. But guess what? There is such a place in Araby. And it matches the book's description of Bountiful. It's even got trees to make a boat out of. I think my... <laughs> I think my upstate New York backwoods accent is starting to slip decidedly further south. Let me try and get back up north again if I can. It's even got trees to make a boat out of, which the book says is just what they did. It's even got honeybees buzzing around, just like the book says is there. It's even got iron ore on the surface of the ground, not far distant, which is a big help because the book says they made some iron tools out of it and it would be pretty hard to find the iron to make the tools if it wasn't there or if it was so deep in the earth they couldn't dig it out. Crazier still is this is the only place in all of Araby that looks all lush and nice like this. It's not like they got nice spots all over the place. Craziest of all is if you start at the place those German archaeologists say was in HM and head just about due east, you can't help but run into Bountiful. It's less than one degree off due east. What are the odds of that, I wonder? And it's not like this Bountiful place was super well known. Most folks who lived in Araby didn't know about it. That's because it's in a way out of the way place where people don't go much. No reason to. Not much there. Just this lush green place, exactly like this book described in 1829. Western folk knowing about this place in 1829? Not likely. Farm boys knowing about this place in 1829? Less so. How many folks know about it today? Not many, I expect. For all the world, these first pages of the book sound like they was writ by somebody who actually walked the walk, instead of just talking the talk. And not much of this stuff was even known back in 1829. Leastwise, not in upstate New York by the average farm boy. It's like this boy was using stuff out of a whole bunch of books that hadn't been written yet, and basing his book off discoveries that hadn't been discovered yet. It sure is something, land sakes. I don't know how he done it, but it sure must have taken a whole lot of work. And yet, he's just talking and talking with his face in a hat, throwing out names and places and complicated ways of speech like there was nothing to it. Here's the part I really don't get. If I had gone to all that work to make up a book and try to make it sound like it was for real, you can bet I would come along later and point out all this good stuff to other folks and say, see, this shows the book is real. But this farm boy never done that. And he never had nobody else do it neither. Once he talks this 600-page book out of a hat, he really don't seem to pay it much never mind from that point on. He barely talks about it at all when he is preaching. It's like he just throws off a 600-page book like it's no big deal and then goes on to other things. He just did not understand the value of a hard day's work. And now the final section is called Last Words, appropriately enough. I'm gonna, <laughs> I think my accent is slowly but surely roaming around the entire United States by this point. There's a, lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of other stuff about this book that I could go on and on about, but I better stop right here. I got chores to tend to. Besides, if this ain't enough to convince you, I reckon nothing will. It couldn't be no plainer if a salamander done transfigured himself into an angel and done conked a body over the head with a set of gold plates. The last thing I'll say is that there was a smart lawyer fellow a while back named Wigmore. He was a real expert on legal evidence and whatnot. He come up with this doctrine that he called the doctrine of chances. That's just a fancy lawyer way of saying, what are the odds? We all know what a coincidence is. We've all had coincidences happen to us at one time or another. What Wigmore says is that if a fella is charged with a crime and he don't confess and there ain't no eyewitness, sometimes a bunch of coincidences can be enough to prove he done it just the same. One coincidence can be just that, a coincidence. Two of them, and it looks a little bit more like the fella's guilty of something, but it could just be bad luck. 
three coincidences, and it's starting to look pretty bad for the fella. At some point, you just got to throw up your hands and say, enough is enough. That's too many coincidences for me to believe you're innocent. Looks like you got to hang for it. And now I close the second part of this piece with the following. At some point, there's just too many dang coincidences in this book to believe it came from a 23-year-old farm boy in upstate New York, especially in 1829. Looks like that farm boy is guilty of something. And what he's guilty of is dictating an ancient book from out the bottom of a hat. Looks like he might have to hang for it too. I've been around a long time, and this old world's been around a lot longer. I suppose this old world's seen a lot of strange things in its time. Maybe some things even stranger than this. But for the life of me, I just don't know when. So that is the end of both parts of the blog I wrote in 2013 called Evidences for the Book of Mormon. You know, I read through this, and not only the evidences themselves, but the way I frame them and the things I do with them and how I argue them, and I think it's pretty darn convincing. But this may be like the scene on Gilligan's Island where Gilligan is standing between the skipper and the professor, and the skipper and the professor are arguing, and Gilligan finds himself agreeing with each side as they make their argument. (laughs) And changing his position back and forth depending upon who's arguing right then. So here I write the blog that I've been promising you from the other side of the coin, arguing against the Book of Mormon being an ancient book. And here in this blog, I appear to drop the, (laughs) thankfully, to drop the backwoodsy kind of accent, which I was unable to keep in the backwoods of any one particular state. And here's how this goes. I'll try and read this somewhat quickly. Oh, I refer again to Edgar Allan Poe's purloined letter in it. Let's go on. From the top. Having recently written a two-part article on the seemingly undeniable connections between the Book of Mormon and the ancient world, I thought it only fair to examine the flip side of the coin and set forth evidence that the Book of Mormon is not an ancient but a modern composition. Like most people, Mormons have an innate ability to not think about things that challenge their worldview. I'll think about that another day, as Scarlett O'Hara put it. But as with Poe's purloined letter, evidence that the Book of Mormon is a modern production hides in plain sight, within its own pages. The next section is titled, The Smoking Gun. We do not have to look far for evidence of Book of Mormon modernity. The Smoking Gun is found in the vast tracts of the King James Bible copied into the Nephite record. It may be a good thing that Book of Mormon readers have historically been stopped dead at the Isaiah chapters in 2 Nephi 12-24, where no less than 11 chapters of Isaiah are faithfully reproduced from the King James Bible. Failing to read these chapters makes it easier to avoid the obvious fact that whoever produced the Book of Mormon was doing a lot of cribbing from the KJV, and I mean a lot. I grant that the copying of these Isaiah chapters is not word for word and that there are a few variants thrown in here and there, but it is undeniable that the KJV was used in some way to produce this section of the Book of Mormon. Only someone with an axe to grind would argue otherwise. I have heard members say that the Book of Isaiah was contained in the brass plates taken by Lehi and company when they departed Jerusalem. This may well be so. But it does not change the fact that if Joseph Smith were freely translating an extremely early Isaiah text, it would not faithfully replicate the language of the KJV. To boil this down, the KJV was first published in 1611 and was the version widely used in Joseph Smith's time and place. How is it then that the Book of Mormon, all of which occurred over a thousand years before the KJV was published, nevertheless contains many chapters taken from the KJV? While the how may not be clear, the fact that this is the case is obvious, and this fact leads ineluctably to the conclusion that the Book of Mormon is a modern production. It could not have been produced prior to 1611. It has been postulated that Joseph Smith must have consulted the KJV when he came to such chapters and followed the KJV where it did not contradict the translation he was getting off the plates. The first thing to note is that the only reason such a theory is put forward is because the plagiarism is so obvious. And while this theory helps resolve some issues with Book of Mormon dependence on the KJV, it runs headlong into statements by witnesses of the translation, including Emma Smith, who are clear that Joseph consulted no books or papers at any time during the process. That the witnesses agreed Joseph dictated the Book of Mormon with his face in a hat, 
only serves to make such postulated KJV consultation less likely. The next section is called the Isaiah problem. The Isaiah problem becomes only more thorny with the advent of the Deutero-Isaiah theory and even a Tridero-Isaiah theory, which holds that later chapters of the book of Isaiah were written pseudonymously after the fall of Jerusalem. The problem this has for the Book of Mormon is that the brass plates were taken into the desert prior to Babylon dropping the hammer in 587 BCE. If the scholars are correct, none of the Deutero-Isaiah or Tridero-Isaiah material comprising chapters 44 through 66 of Isaiah would have been on the brass plates to be copied into the Nephite record. This would not be so bad if the Book of Mormon quoted only chapters 2 through 14 in 2 Nephi, but it goes on to quote Isaiah 53 in Mosiah 14 and Isaiah 54 in 3 Nephi 22. How does the Book of Mormon quote material that according to the best Old Testament scholarship was not even written by the original Isaiah and could not have been on the brass plates? In order to explain this, some have maintained a distinctly minority position that the entirety of Isaiah was written by the one prophet Isaiah himself about a hundred years before Nephi killed a drunk man in order to steal his brass plates. It seems clear though that this position is argued largely in order to explain why late chapters of Isaiah appear in the Book of Mormon. And it should not be forgotten that even if this were the case, it does nothing to answer why, once again, this material from the latter part of Isaiah still appears in good KJV English. The next section is titled, The New Testament in the Book of Mormon. But the evidence of modernity, i.e. that the Book of Mormon is a product of early 19th century, but the evidence of modernity only continues to mount. One can argue the unity of Isaiah until the cows come home, but it seems pointless when the Book of Mormon quotes three full chapters from Matthew. Matthew 5-7 through 7, quoted in 3 Nephi 12-15, through 15, constituting the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. While there are, again, minor variations in the text, the dependency on the KJV is unmistakable. I have heard some argue that Jesus just gave the same sermon to the Nephites that he gave in the Old World, like a stump speech a politician gives so many times he knows it by heart. As unlikely as this theory may be, it cannot survive the fact that even if Jesus gave the same speech to the two different groups, it would not result in the same KJV language. And then there are the passages from Paul's epistles reproduced in the Book of Mormon. As Sidney B. Sperry wrote, chapters 7 and 10 of the Book of Moroni contain teachings which so closely parallel passages in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 that they constitute a literary problem. And then he goes on to note that many phrases are word for word the same as in the King James Version. And here I give one of my few citations because I think it's important to demonstrate the fact that Sidney B. Sperry, a faithful Mormon scholar, is the one who actually wrote that. It's from Sidney B. Sperry, The Problems of the Book of Mormon. That's the name of his book, The Problems of the Book of Mormon, Salt Lake City, Utah, Bookcraft, 1964, pages 113 and 117. Sperry goes on to suggest that Paul and the Book of Mormon were drawing on an earlier body of teachings available to both. While a possibility there is no evidence that this is the case. And even if there were, it does not explain why these teachings would be reproduced in the Book of Mormon in the very language of, repeat it with me now, the KJV. The reason I keep coming back to the KJV language in the Book of Mormon is because it is so easy to be diverted away from this unmistakable fact. Even if all 66 chapters of Isaiah existed before 600 BCE, unlikely, it does not account for why Isaiah appears in the Book of Mormon in the language of the KJV. Even if Jesus gave the identical word-for-word -word sermon to the Nephites that he gave in the New Testament, unlikely, it does not account for why the same sermon appears in the Book of Mormon in the language of the KJV. Even if passages from Pauline epistles existed in a more ancient though undiscovered text available to both Paul and the Book of Mormon prophets, unlikely, it does not account for why these passages appear in the Book of Mormon in the language of the KJV. Because the KJV was not published until 1611 and the Book of Mormon nevertheless reproduces page after page of the KJV, 
it is incontrovertible that the Book of Mormon could not have existed prior to 1611 and is therefore a modern production. Book of Mormon believers tend to want to whistle past the graveyard on this issue. I know. I did exactly the same thing for many years. And now finally we come to the conclusion. I believe I have now demonstrated in this article that the Book of Mormon is a product of the modern world. I also believe I have demonstrated in my previous two-part article that the Book of Mormon is a product of the ancient world. The typical response for those who believe in the Book of Mormon is to cheer the evidence of ancientness and to discount by hook or crook the evidences of modernity. Conversely, the typical response from those who do not believe in the Book of Mormon is to do the exact opposite. It is my opinion that neither response engages fully with the actual text, which to my mind bears unmistakable affinities to both the ancient world and the modern world. Taking the evidence as a whole and resisting the temptation of special pleading, I am forced to conclude that the Book of Mormon is neither modern nor ancient, but is both at the same time. How can this be? I don't know the answer to that, but it is where the evidence leads me. As Socrates said that the unexamined life is not worth living, so I have come to believe that the unexamined Book of Mormon is not worth reading, and perhaps not believing, at least not for me. The position that the Book of Mormon is both ancient and modern may give additional insight into a New Testament parable. As Jesus said of the scribe instructed into the kingdom of heaven, Joseph Smith appears to have brought forth out of his treasure things old and new. That's from Matthew 13.52. And that is the end of the third article that I wrote, the article arguing for the fact that the Book of Mormon is obviously a product of the modern world, i.e., the early 19th century, exactly the time and environment in which the Book of Mormon was dictated and came off the press. And so, in conclusion to this podcast, Jack West presented one side of the case for the Book of Mormon. What I have tried to do is, to the best of my ability, present a case for the Book of Mormon and also the case against the Book of Mormon. The first part was the case arguing for the ancientness of the Book of Mormon, and the second part was the case arguing against the ancientness of the Book of Mormon. I have done my best to present both sides of the argument as fairly and fully as I possibly can, and I'm not going to come down on either side of this for purposes of the podcast. I'm the lawyer. I don't get to make the decisions. You are the jury. I will leave the evidence in your hands and ask that you consider all of the evidence fully and fairly and come to your own conclusions on the subject. The bailiff will now escort you into the jury room where you will begin your deliberations. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.